Well, now, for a few years, Christmas and Epiphany has got to have got sort of mixed up. Because, of course, technically speaking, although we've been singing about them for weeks now, no mention should really have been made of the wise men until today. And is it important? We can't be technically right all the time. But there is a very special message that Epiphany brings. And it would be a real shame if we missed it. And it's that central nugget that I was sharing with the children and the young people. Now, in a sense, it's a very adult message. But it's a message we need to know and to learn right from our Christian cradle, just our, our faith cradle, as it were, that if you want to find the truth about God, if you're really sincere in finding the truth about God, if you don't give up, you'll find it. If with your whole hearts you truly seek me, you shall ever surely find me. In a sense, that's not the classical epiphany message, but I believe it's very, very important for us to remember as Christians because uh, the series that I've planned over the next few weeks and months is a series trying to tackle some of the knotty problems that people face every day in their Christian lives. Some of you uh, will remember me mentioning Rhodes Boyson. He was once one of Margaret Thatcher's government ministers. He was a, a Lancastrian, had a wonderful, wonderful North Country accent. He was a headmaster in, in, in somewhere like Burnley or Rochdale or somewhere like that. He was a Lancastrian. And I remember him because of his mum. His mother was a, a very faithful Methodist and she used to go to church every Sunday and she had one criterion for a good sermon. As far as she was concerned, a sermon was only any good if it got her through washing on Monday. If she could remember it, if it got her through the washing day on a Monday, it was a good sermon. But if it said nothing to her at all and left her cold and, and weary and empty on a Monday, it was no good. And having been a minister for quite a long time, this, this year will be my 40th year, I think to myself, have I been blathering for 40 years? Have I been just gassing on to no effect? Is it really connecting with people? Is it really touching the spot? And in a sense, that's what I want to do this morning, by asking the question, what do we do when faith doesn't work? What do we do when faith doesn't work? And the lesson of the wise men is, if you really want to find the truth about God, go on searching, because in the end you'll find it. Don't give up. It's not easy to go on searching when you don't find what you're looking for. Of course, some people never actually begin to look for the truth about God as far as they're concerned, Having a job and keeping a roof over their head is enough to be going on with, let alone spending time 
searching for truth. But you see, there is a hunger, isn't there, in the human heart that won't be satisfied with material things. And the wise men teach us to go on searching, searching until you find it. So I want to give you some encouragement along those lines this morning. And to do so, I want to turn to a very, very familiar story in Mark chapter 9. You remember the story? Jesus and three of his disciples had gone up to the top of a mountain, and there they'd had an incredible experience, an incredible experience of seeing Jesus transfigured before them. He was transformed in, 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 in light that was brighter than anything they could possibly ever have seen in their lives. And, and, and they saw him and heard him talking with two of the great figures of Jewish history, Moses and Elijah. And, and Peter tried to make sure that that experience just went on and on and on and on forever and ever and ever and ever. But of course it had to come to an end. They had to come down the mountain. And coming down the mountain they walked straight into an argument. Jesus' disciples, whom he'd left at the foot of the mountain, were arguing with the Jewish chief priests because somehow they had failed to heal an epileptic boy. And at this point, Jesus got cross. <laughs> we'll consider that in a little while. But first of all, I want to look at the individual people in the story. And first of all, let's have a look at the distracted father. I call him distracted because he was at his wit's end. We all love our children, don't we? And when we see them suffer, it, it just tears our guts out, doesn't it? We feel, I want to be in that place. I want to suffer instead of you. If only I were suffering the pain that you're suffering. Well, this man had seen his son convulsed again and again and again. He'd seen him subjected to terrible, terrible danger of self-harm. He'd heard that this carpenter from Nazareth might be able to help. But all he could find were the man's disciples, and, and, and they were no good. It was just another blind alley, just another disappointment. And then Jesus himself arrived. Okay, let's think about the discouraged disciples, the people whom Jesus had left at the foot of the mountain. I always feel sorry for them, really, really sorry for them. They weren't to know, were they? that when Jesus had gone somewhere else, someone would come with an insoluble problem. Isn't life like that? Just when you are not expecting it, at the worst possible moment, something really, really difficult or, or impossible happens. It's like that moment when you're ready to go on holiday, the car is packed, the kids are in the car, and, and, and you, you know, you, you're, you're just about in time to miss the, 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 the rush on the M25, and the car won't start. Why does it happen now? Why did this impossible problem present itself now? And they began to panic too, because there was a crowd beginning to gather. The father of the boy was getting more and more desperate. The Jewish leaders, who were no doubt enjoying the discomfiture of the disciples hugely, were getting more and more sarcastic. And to add to their humiliation, when Jesus came down, he started getting cross. Oh, unbelieving generation, verse 19. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now let's look at Jesus. Well, at once 
The boy was thrown into a convulsion, and Jesus' attitude changed straight away. The anger was replaced by compassion. Verse 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? And then the floodgates opened, and the man poured out his anguish, or his frustrated love for his son, together with his feeble measure of faith that anything could ever be done to help them. Listen to verse 22. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Your heart goes out, doesn't it, to this man. He wasn't concerned about himself. He didn't say, if you can help him. No, he said, if you can help us, I'm hurting as well. If you can do anything to help us, take pity on us and help us. And immediately, of course, Jesus picks up the hesitation. If you can. He knew that this man was on the edge of an abyss. He, got, he had one foot dangling over the edge while the other, the, the, the other was only just holding steady. He was about to fall off. And it comes to us in different ways. But very often, that kind of experience happens even to the strongest and most confident of Christians. And you know, I'm so glad that the young people are with us, the um, LEDs are with us this morning. Because I want to say to you, young people, as you grow in the Christian life, God will be with you. Of course he will. He'll never let you down. He'll never rat on you. He'll never turn around and abandon you. He will always be there. But that doesn't mean that the way is going to be easy. In fact, as you grow older in the Christian life, sometimes it gets harder. And you know what happens when life gets harder? You have to lean more on resources outside yourself. And as things get harder, get harder, you learn to trust more. And that's what Christian maturity really means. Learning to trust. Learning to accept your own weakness. Learning to accept his strength. And if you look at the Bible, you read the Bible, and that, that wonderful challenge that David gave us this morning is so important. If you go all the way through the Bible, you will find again and again and again men and women of faith, not necessarily standing there with arms in the air saying, I'm triumphant, I'm overcoming. Not necessarily. Sometimes, yes, but not necessarily all the time. Sometimes they wring their hands and they say, Lord, where are you? Where are you, Lord? And it's in those moments that we grow, that we come to understand and that we can sing from personal experience. What a faithful God have I. What a faithful God. Okay. What happened when Jesus took charge? Well, of course, he knew what was really wrong with the boy. Other folk who were there, they just knew that his life was overshadowed by this dreadful menace, which at any moment could threaten horrendous injury. Jesus knew that evil had to be confronted and overcome, and it was a mighty confrontation, because when it was over, the boys lay still, and everybody thought that he was dead. Verse 27 tells us, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet. And Mark rounds off the story with a kind of little epilogue. You know, in the old days, um, Z cars and things like that. Do you remember Z cars? 
God, yeah. It's going back into the dark ages. They used to have a little epilogue at the end to see what happened to the villain and how everything was sorted out. Detective stories these days, they don't do that. They leave you, don't they? Sort of hanging in the air. Well, Mark gives a little epilogue to this story. The crowd had melted away. The father and the son had gone home, grateful, no doubt, that their nightmare was over. The Jewish leaders had disappeared, no doubt frustrated that they hadn't been able to land a killer blow on this pesky rabbi who seemed to have miraculous powers. Jesus and his disciples had gone home as well. The Bible says that they were indoors. And then the questions started. Crestfallen, verse 28. Why couldn't we drive it out? What's wrong with us? Why are we such failures? Why are we so inadequate? Why couldn't we drive it out? You feel so sorry for them, don't you? Because you've been in that situation so many times yourself. And Jesus' answer appears very simple, verse 29. This kind can come out only by prayer. Now, does that mean that we've got to spend hours and hours and hours on our knees? Does that mean that we've got to recite prayer after prayer after prayer after prayer, read enormous great tomes on prayer? Does that, is that the recipe? I don't think so. It's not a question of length of time spent praying, but the reality and the persistence and the sincerity of our prayer. To use an old-fashioned word, our prayers have got to be prevailing. Have you ever heard of prevailing prayer? That's what we need, prevailing prayer. You see, prayer, if it's real, is always a battle. Always a battle. Our spiritual enemy hates it when we pray because he knows it has two effects. First of all, it shows that we have faith. What's the point in praying if you don't think it has any effect at all? So it proves you've got a bit of faith. And secondly, when you pray, your faith is strengthened. But it doesn't come easily. It's always, always a battle. Always. But it's a battle that we can win. What I believe Jesus meant is this. The power to overcome evil, whether it's in your own life or someone else's, comes from faith. That's what we do. We believe. The power to overcome evil, whether it's in your own life or someone else's, comes from faith. And faith comes from going on believing and never giving up. John Wesley, we love to hear about John Wesley, don't we? Especially if we're Methodists. John Wesley, before he was converted, long before he was converted, went as a missionary to North America to bring the Red Indians to Christ. Preached to the Indians in North America. And it was a complete and utter washout. <laughs> he got nowhere. And he came back a disappointed man. And on the way back, on the journey back, he met a wonderful Moravian minister called Peter Burla. And he confessed to Peter Burla. He said, I've, I've got no faith at all. This is Wesley. I've got no faith at all. And Peter Burla answered in a very enigmatic sort of way. He said this. He said, preach faith. Preach faith till you have it, 
and then because you have it, you will preach faith. Now that seems rather cockeyed, doesn't it? Rather confusing. But I believe it shows us the way. If you have a tiny little amount of faith that you may be hanging on to by the skin of your teeth, don't abandon it. Don't despair. Don't think it's inadequate. It's too little. Even if it seems infinitely small, offer it to God. Come to him in exactly the same way as the distracted father did and say, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. This is where I am, Lord. This is where I am. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And then, then, let him work his miracle. Let me close by sharing with you an extract from an American missionary publication because it illustrates exactly the point I'm making. Dr. Josh McDowell is a dedicated Christian intellectual and he reports this. He says, I was invited to speak in a university in South America. Because of the university's Marxist leanings, I was the first American to speak there for four years, and it was a tense situation. Big photographs of me had been posted all over the campus, and the communist students, trying to influence the other students to stay away from the meeting, had painted CIA agent in big red letters across the posters. But it backfired, because most of the students had never seen a CIA agent, so they came to the meeting to see what one looked like. And the room was packed. However, as is so often the case when someone speaks in that part of the world, professional Marxist agitators had also come, and their intention was to disrupt the meeting. What happened next was horrible. One after another, these agitators would jump up and throw accusations at me, calling me a filthy pig, hurling words at me in their own language that I didn't know. Right in front of the audience, they were twisting me around their little fingers. I couldn't answer them. I didn't even know what they were saying. I felt so sorry for the Christians who were there because they'd looked forward so eagerly to my coming to the campus and seeing people come to Christ. After 45 minutes of this heckling, I was ready to give up. Every time I even mentioned the name of Jesus, they laughed. And I thought, Lord, why aren't you doing something? Why are you letting Satan win? Well... Evidently, I wasn't walking by faith. Because, you see, God works when it brings the greatest honor and glory to his name, not to ours. Finally, God started to work. The secretary of the revolutionary student movement stood up and everyone became silent. I knew she must be somebody important. She was quite an outspoken person. I didn't know what she was going to say. But this is what she said. Mr. McDowell, if I become a Christian tonight, will God give me the love for people that you have shown for us? And Dr. McDowell ends by saying, well, I don't have to tell you what happened. It just about broke everyone's heart who was there. And we had 58 decisions for Christ. You see, the secret was to go on in face of opposition and wait for God to perform the miracle. The wise men had a star to follow, yes, but no one knows the hardships of their journey or how far they had to travel. They still needed Herod's help to find the child, but they didn't give up. 
They went on until they found him. The father of the epileptic boy was honest enough to admit his lack of faith, but brave enough to hold on to what he had. And that is what you and I have to do when it seems it's all ebbing away. And the final word is that glorious end of chapter 10 in Hebrews, or rather the middle of chapter 10 of Hebrews. Verses 35 and following. Do not throw away your confidence. Don't say, oh, I'll get rid of this lot. Chuck it away. No. Don't do that. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Amen.